Morning, church. I love fairy tales. I love fairy tales. They're timeless, and they're inspiring, and they're fun. From the opening Once Upon a Time, I would say, we all eagerly anticipate the final, and they... You see, you know the story. You know the story. Classic fairy tales have some pretty consistent features that tell us, hey, you are watching or listening to or reading a fairy tale. What we just went over, it starts almost always with once upon a time, and it works its way towards a lived happily ever after. In fairy tales, there are familiar stories, or sorry, familiar characters. You have a hero or a heroine, you know, a good guy or a good gal that we like. They're typically, they're humble, they're naive, they're simple, they're innocent. Often they're alone and unhappy. There's some kind of trouble in their story, but we like them. There's a villain that we don't like, typically a mischief maker or a magic wielder who abuses their evil powers to bring pain and suffering or harm to the hero or heroine, all for their own personal gain, of course. We don't like the villain. And along the way, there's several other supporting characters, but usually there's a prominent friend of some description or another who's a mysterious creature or a character who gives gifts often magical, to help the hero succeed in getting us to that lived happily ever after. For us, fairy tales usually contain some kind of moral message. It's a, it's a story, they're big, these big themes that we really believe in or want to believe in. Things like truth prevails over lies. Generosity or selflessness comes to be rewarded. Obstacles are overcome by hard work and or love Good triumphs over evil. Mercy and kindness are the greatest powers this universe has ever seen. These are classic fairy tales. It's like Cinderella. It's the rags to riches story. Once upon a time, our heroine Cinderella was a loving and kind young lady being raised by her terrible stepmother and constantly overshadowed by her wicked stepsisters. See, you already know the story. You know who to like and who not to like, and you know where this story is going. And so after the fairy godmother shows up and bestows on Cinderella the royal carriage and the ball gown and the glass slippers, we already know where this story is going. That when Cinderella runs away at the stroke of midnight and all of the magic disappears, except, interestingly, the one glass slipper she lost while running away. We know where this story is going. Ultimately, the prince and the Cinderella, against all obstacles, get married, and they all lived happily ever after. Well, a couple years ago, uh, my family ran into what I'd call a more modern style of fairy tale. There was a book called, uh, actually, The Land of Stories. There's a whole bunch of them. Really interesting read. All kinds of kind of riffs on classic fairy tales told as all these stories jumble together into one big overarching awesome story. That's all I have to say about that. Actually, no, that's not all I have to say about that. What's interesting about these stories to me is that the characters are not nearly as flat as the Cinderella story. There is no clear good guy and bad guy. Sometimes there's good guys that you hate and bad guys that you like. And there seems to be this kind of consistent theme where we go, ah, let's, let's 
let's tweak that old story a little bit. So here's some elements of a modern fairy tale. Uh, still have the once upon a time that works its way, generally speaking, towards a happily ever after. But the characters tend to be a little bit more mixed. Uh, The good characters, for example, they aren't always nice. They aren't always noble. Even though you know that they're the good guy and they're the one you're supposed to be rooting for. And the bad characters aren't always motivated by selfish gain. Maybe they actually had their heart ripped out in their own tragic encounter somewhere in their backstory that has led them to be the evil monster they are today. And so we have some pity and compassion and empathy. These stories tend to be a little bit darker, end up being unresolved sometimes. There can be bigger travesties, major characters sometimes die and don't come back. There's hurts that aren't always made right loose ends that draw us into the story to ponder, like Shrek, (laughs) which is a fairy tale from my teen years anyway, that's not really a fairy tale, that actually kind of is a fairy tale. It starts with a once upon a time, and so we know where the story's going before it even begins, but that page is soon ripped out of the book and used as toilet paper, literally. If you haven't seen Shrek, it is a good time. It is well worth, well worth your watch. Shrek, our hero, quite frankly, is not a knight in shining armor. He's an ogre who belches and farts and brushes his teeth with slug slime and uses earwax as a candle. This is our hero, and he has no interest whatsoever in rescuing the princess from the fire-breathing dragon, except that he wants his swamp cleared of all the riffraff who have come to squat there so he can just be alone. He's a hero that you know you're supposed to like, But he does all the wrong things. And he does some right things, but for all the wrong reasons. And the magical creature sent to help Shrek is a deeply loyal, fast-talking donkey with pretty much no other useful skills in the quest. Here's the magical friend. It's a rollicking good time. It's hilarious, and it's creative. And at the end of it all, after all the action, we get the satisfaction of a happily ever after. It's less predictable, it's less tidy, but it's still uplifting. From a fairy tale's opening line, we eagerly look forward to that happy ending. And Ruth 4 is about as inspiring and uplifting as any fairy tale as I've ever heard. At the end of a journey that's fraught with potential to end poorly, we have the satisfying all wrongs righted conclusion to the story that we've been longing for. You go ahead and turn to Ruth chapter 4 as I just set up the rest of the story for you. If you've missed the last few sermons, I know they've been kind of a little bit disjointed and split up by um, other, other pieces along the way, so let me just set up the story for you. This is Mike's summary of Ruth. Once upon a time, there was an Israelite family living in Bethlehem. But there was a famine in the land, so the man and his wife and two sons left for a foreign country, Moab. They lived there for a long time, and their sons married two beautiful Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. But tragedy struck, and all the men of the family died. Naomi was left alone with her two daughters-in-law, no husband and no sons. Not knowing what else to do, Naomi left out, sorry, set out for her homeland telling her daughters-in-law to do the same. Go back to your families. Go back. Just stay here in Moab. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. So Orpah went back to her family, but Ruth 
stubbornly refused to leave her mother-in-law. So Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem without any men to provide for them. Ruth went to gather the leftover grain in a nearby field as it was being harvested. And lo and behold, the field belonged to an upright man named Boaz. And lo and behold her, he was a relative of Naomi's. And lo and beholdest, he was an eligible bachelor who took notice of Ruth. This is a good story. As the harvest was ending, Naomi coached Ruth to convince Boaz to act as their guardian redeemer as the law required and to purchase Naomi's fields and to marry Ruth. And that's where we pick up our story today. Ruth chapter 4, straight from the word of God. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. I just, I just picture, like, you know the guy who's going to do business has, like, some extra sandals in his back pocket, you know? Like, I know what that, he's going to make some transactions today. (laughs) You don't want to be walking around barefoot in the desert. So the guardian redeemer, verse 8, said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to his elders, or to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all of the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by the young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. 
The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. The word of the Lord. Isn't this a beautiful, happily ever after? Naomi has a son and a guardian redeemer to protect her in her old age. Boaz has new property and a new wife. Ruth has a home. Death, where we started in the beginning, has turned into new birth. Emptiness has turned into satisfaction. Bitterness into sweetness. A foreigner into family. And they all lived happily ever after. The only problem is that if you listen to the story carefully, it's more Shrek than Cinderella. See, the story of Ruth is like our life stories. It's untidy, and it's messy, and it's complicated. I'm just going to look at a couple pieces, and I couldn't go into all the details that I would love to, so bear with me. Take a look in chapter 4 at verses 11 and 12, where the women issue this beautiful blessing. When the elders in the community bless Boaz's redemption of Naomi's field, sorry, not the women, the elders in the community do this, they definitely pick some messy, complicated examples. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. Are you familiar with that story? Are you familiar with that story? Jacob was supposed to marry Rachel, the younger sister. But his soon-to-be father-in-law tricked him and instead on his wedding night gave him the older sister. And in order for him to get the younger sister as well, he had to stick around another seven years. Rachel and Leah, once the marriages were finally taking place, were jealous of each other. Constantly trying to outdo the other in producing sons. Even going so far as to give their handmaids to Jacob as wives. And so the community here is saying, I don't know that they're saying this exactly, but may Ruth bring a polygamous and contentious spirit into your home. (laughs) Okay, okay, I think I know, I think I know what they mean. Be fruitful and have lots of sons. But Rachel and Leah's story is messy. Or jump down to the last line. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. If you thought Rachel and Leah's story was messy, just wait. Sorry, let me catch up a little bit here. There we are. Judah had three sons. And Tamar was married to Judah's oldest son, Ur. But because he was wicked in the Lord's sight, we don't know exactly for what, the Lord put him to death. And so Tamar was left without a husband. Per the Israelite law, Onan, Judah's second son, 
was to sleep with Tamar in order to produce offspring in her brother's place. But he didn't. And so the Lord struck him down also. Judah, noticing the pattern, not wanting to lose another son, withheld Shelah, his youngest. When Tamar figured out what was going on, Tamar dressed up as a prostitute. Judah, her unwitting father-in-law, solicited her, and she got pregnant by him. When Judah later tried to have her put to death for getting pregnant as a prostitute, she produced some evidence saying, in fact, it was you who got me pregnant. So the community here, as they bless Ruth, is trying to say, may you have a cunning wife who poses as a prostitute to get her way? Ah, like I just, okay, I get it. That's probably not what they're saying. I actually don't know what this particular blessing means, except in that it's somehow the dot that connects Perez to King David. And they're somewhere in that line. That's about all the sense I can make of that. Any way you slice it, Tamar and Judah is a messy story. Or not to mention this little tidbit that we hear again and again and again in the book of Ruth. Ruth the Moabite, the foreigner. It happens no less than seven times that she's called specifically a Moabite. To put it gently, Israel tended to view the Moabites poorly. Again, a little bit of history if you wanted to go back to Genesis 19 after God had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their exceeding wickedness. Lot, the nephew of the great Abraham, So Lot and his two daughters fled to the mountains and they lived in a cave. And there were no other men around, so the two daughters hatched a plan. They schemed to get him drunk in order to sleep with him and bear children. Their children's names were Moab and Ben-Ami, who became the originating ancestors of the Moabites and the Ammonites, which, again, if you've spent much time in the Old Testament, you know are basically sworn enemies of Israel. And we see that really clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 23 about how the covenant-chosen special people Israel are supposed to relate to the Moabites. This is out of Deuteronomy chapter 23. It says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Not even in the tenth generation. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. And Ruth is a Moabite of a nation that is hated, despised, and forever excluded from the most prestigious, or sorry, from the assembly of Israel. And here, not only is Ruth included in the story of Israel, she's included in the most prestigious lineage in all of Israel's history, the one that leads to the great King David. Twice in this short passage, we're reminded that Obed is not just a son born to a widow foreigner and her new husband. Obed is the grandfather of the great king. That story hits a little closer to home for me. It's a story that's messy, and that's untidy, and that's complicated. Yes, there's lots of happy things about this ending, but this is no happily ever after fairy tale. And for me, this is a great encouragement because when I see the messy stories of Rachel and Leah and Tamar and Judah and Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, I see my story. 
I see your story. I see God at work, writing his story in and through the messy faithfulness of his people. In Ruth, God writes the story of a faithful, hardworking, steadfast kindness to her mother-in-law. In Naomi, God writes the story of restoration, from overwhelming loss to fullness and family. In Boaz, God writes the story of deep righteousness, of caring for the vulnerable because he, or because that is in the heart of God. In Ruth, God writes the story of true inclusion, from excluded, hated foreigner to the great-grandmother of the great king. In Naomi, God writes the story of transformation, from deep bitterness and despair to renewed joy and purpose. In Boaz, God writes the story of wisely using his means and the legal channels of his day to do what is right, to act as a redeemer for his family. This is not a Cinderella story. It's not even a Shrek story. It's God's story who is still writing redemption and inclusion and restoration stories today in the midst of the messy faithfulness of you, his people. And so to the bitter and the downtrodden and the beat up, I think God says, I know you are in pain. Stay with me. Fight with me. Cry with me. Hurt with me. I will restore you. And to the immigrant and the foreigner and the excluded and anybody who feels like they don't belong, I think God says, I know you in your loneliness. Stay with me. Follow me. Be faithful. I have a place for you. To the well-to-do who coast along, just keeping things moving, God says, I know you in your wealth and your power and your comfort. Stay with me. Know my heart. Do what is right. Pay attention. I have things for you to do. Come to think of it, if we've really heard Ruth 4, I think we've heard a gritty, down-to-earth, real story of faith and action. There's tragedy and there is triumph There is hard work and cunning action. More than a little luck. It's a story more powerful than any fairy tale. It's a story written in God's unique style of redemption and of grace. And it's the story that God still writes today. The question is, will you faithfully seek God's happily ever after?